Last uh, September, Adam Newman, the charismatic founder of WeWork, was sitting atop the most valuable startup in the U.S., getting ready for a blockbuster IPO. The company was valued at some $47 billion. Wouldn't you like to be a part of that? But in less than a week, Adam found himself out of a job when his eccentric lifestyle and management style came to light. Came to light. Think how many times uh, bad behavior has caused the mighty to fall. And it affects not just uh, the guilty, but impacts many innocent people as well. Well, that is our story today from 2 Samuel, and it's a very familiar story. Uh, David had been anointed king of Judah in Hebron. Saul is dead, but one of his sons, Ishbosheth, has been put on the throne of the northern tribes by Saul's general, Abner. Skirmishes break out between the two armies, but finally Abner is murdered, and then Ishbosheth is assassinated by his own people. And so all the elders come to David and ask that he be their king. And he agrees, and at the age of 30, he is coronated as king of the entire nation. David then goes on to conquer Jerusalem and, and moves his capital there. The Ark of the Covenant, the most powerful religious symbol of Judaism, is also moved there, and so Jerusalem also becomes the religious center of the nation. And then in chapter 7, we find this remarkable promise, this covenant that God makes with David, that God will establish his house and that his descendants will sit on the throne forever. I mean, forever is a long time, right? And the gospel writers read this as a prophecy of the coming of the Messiah. And so Luke, in chapter 1, has the angel who comes to Mary speaking of the birth of Jesus in this way. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will know no end. So the writer of the book of Samuel comments then on how just David's rule was, how he brings peace to the nation, how good things are for everyone, and everything he does turns to gold. His people love him. David is at the top of his game. And then we come to chapter 11. It's spring, and David's army has gone to battle with some neighboring tribes. David has chosen to stay home. It's not an important battle. And one afternoon, while walking on the palace roof, maybe bored, wishing he had gone out with his troops, he sees a woman, and she is bathing. The writer of Samuel says that she was very beautiful. And David is infatuated. He finds out that her name is Bathsheba and that she is married to one of his officers named Uriah, who was out with the army fighting. 
And so he sends messengers to invite her to the palace. He sleeps with her and then sends her back to her home. About a month later, she sends word that she is pregnant. And so David devises a cover-up. He has his general Joab send Uriah back to Jerusalem. He updates David on how the battle is going, and David sends him home with a gift. David is sure that Uriah will sleep with his wife and will think that he is responsible for the pregnancy. But David underestimates Uriah's loyalty. He's not going to sleep with his beautiful wife in the comfortable bed while the troops are out roughing it in the field. And so David comes up with another plan. He, he invites Uriah to his house for dinner, and then he, he gets him drunk, and then he sends him home. Still doesn't work. And so David sends a letter to Joab. Put Uriah in the most dangerous part of the fighting where he will most certainly be killed. Joab follows the orders. Uriah is killed. And after a discreet amount of time has passed, David sends for Bathsheba and he marries her. And he thinks that he's gotten away with it all. Isn't it great to be the king? Wealth and power, control and sex. But it's not the David that we have been reading about so far. What happened to the David who, who loved God? What happened to David who, who wrote Psalm 23? What happened to the David who was a, a man after God's own heart? What happened to him? What happened to David is simple. You see, the Bible affirms from Genesis to Revelation that, that we're sinners, that there's something in us that wants to do wrong, to rebel against God, and it destroys our relationships and it messes with our relationship with God. And chapter 11 ends with these words, the thing David has done displeased the Lord. And so the Lord sends Nathan with a message to David. Nathan is, he's the court chaplain. He's kind of like David's pastor. Now, how do you do that? How do you tell a man who has power to throw you into jail or to take off your head that he's wrong? How do you tell a king that he's a sinner? So Nathan tells a story. Everyone likes a story. It's a story of a rich man with large flocks of sheep who who needs a lamb to serve for dinner guests who are coming. But instead of taking a lamb from his flock, he takes the pet lamb from a poor man who lives up the street, and he, he butchers the lamb, and he serves it for dinner. And David hears the story, and he's outraged at the cruelty and the callousness of this rich man who had everything. How could anybody do such a terrible thing? And he passes the death sentence David says, this man who did this should die, must die. And then Nathan says to David, thou art the man. 
Ever been sitting in church listening to a sermon and you're thinking to yourself, my wife really needs to hear this today. <laughs> Nor my husband or my sister or my children, whatever it is. And, and then all of a sudden you realize the message isn't for somebody else. It's for you. And that's what Nathan does. He brilliantly peels away all of David's self-righteous religiosity. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. And I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? For you struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and I will give them to one who is close to you and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did this in secret. But I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. And at that moment, David realizes that he's a sinner, that he's a person who needs help, that he's a person who is desperately in need of God's grace. And so David says, I have sinned against the Lord. Friends, this is huge. David could have had Nathan thrown into jail. That's what most kings would have done. Or he could have come up with a, an excuse or he could have denied it. But he doesn't. He comes clean. And Nathaniel gives him the words of absolution. He says, the Lord has taken away your sin. Amazing. Just recently, a congressperson uh, resigned from office because she had been caught having an affair with one of her staff members. And instead of admitting it, she blamed it on double standard ethics. And maybe she's right. Maybe there is a double standard in Washington. Probably is. But you know, instead of putting the, the blame somewhere else, she, when she does that, what, what, what happens, whenever we do that, we, we miss the grace. We, we miss the mercy. We, we miss the forgiveness, we, we miss the freedom that comes from owning up to it, from admitting that what we have done is wrong. Eugene Peterson says this, he says, only when I recognize and confess my sin am I in a position to recognize and respond to the God who saves me from sin. See, here's the good news today. Jesus is not scandalized by your sin. He already knows everything about you anyway. 
Invite him in. Let his light shine into those dark places of your soul. Don't be afraid. And in Psalm 51, David has written down his prayer of confession after this encounter with Nathan. And and you can almost feel the tears in his voice and, and know that his voice is cracking when he cries out these words, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. So David begins his prayer of confession by accepting responsibility and admitting it. Now, normally we try to bury our sin by pretending that it wasn't a big deal or we try to rationalize it by saying, well, other people have done worse. Or we try to blame it on others. Uh, That's as old as Adam and Eve. That woman you gave me, Adam said. That woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit. Sometimes we try to deal with our past by by beating ourselves up. We administer self-punishment. We make ourselves feel lousy. We we condemn ourselves. We berate ourselves as a way of, of making atonement for what we have done. But we hear none of this in David. You don't hear him say, I'm a terrible, awful person. He just says, I am a sinner. See, David had tried to keep it a secret, but it was killing him from the inside out, and it will. God was, was trying to show David that nothing would satisfy until this secret of his had been dealt with. God would not let him rest. His, his guilt was rotting him from the inside out. Folks, keeping a thing a secret, it will stunt your life and it will poison every relationship that you have. And so admitting it to God and admitting it to Nathan brought David relief. My friends, if you are hiding a, a dark secret, go to someone who's mature in the faith, somebody that you trust, and share it with them. Because the moment that you do that, it begins to lose its power over you. And that's what happened to David. The power of his past was gone. Once we accept responsibility and admit it to God, our our past loses its power over us. But there's another thing that we need to do, and that is to accept God's forgiveness. David goes on and he prays. He says, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. And so David affirms his sinfulness, that he was a sinner at birth, and yet he accepts God's forgiveness that that will wash away the stain of his sin. You know, a lot of times we do the the first step and we, we, we accept responsibility, but we never get to the second step. And so we don't feel forgiven. In Paul's letter to the Romans chapter 8, verse 1, he says this, There is no condemnation for those who live in Christ Jesus. 
See, the Apostle Paul is offering us the promise of of guilt-free, condemnation-free living. Now, the opposite of, of condemnation is justification. That's one of the most important words in the book of Romans. See, to be justified means to be set free from the guilt of sin and the enslaving power of sin. It's received by faith, but it's only something that God can do. And it's been made possible by by Christ's death on the cross. An easy way to remember what this word means is, is to think of justification as just as if I had never sinned. God cleans the slate so that we can start again. That's why Paul can write in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that if anyone is in Christ, the old has passed away. Behold, all things become new. And the moment you do that, the moment that you ask God to forgive you, he does. There's no delay. There's no waiting. There's no hesitation. He does it once and he does it for all. And aren't you glad? I wish I was more like that. The other day somebody called me up and they apologized for something and and I said to them, well, I forgive you. That's what I said, but what I was thinking was, well, I wish you would suffer just a little bit longer. I want you to grovel. I want you to beg and, and plead for my forgiveness. I want, to, I want you to earn your way back into my good graces, and, and then maybe, maybe I'll accept your apologies. Aren't you glad God doesn't think like that? <laughs> when you say, God, I admit it, I blew it, would you forgive me? He says, of course I will, because God is more eager to forgive you than, than you are even to ask for it. For David, there's no delay. There's no earning his way back into God's good graces because you can't. You can't earn your way. God does it out of pure grace. He does it out of pure love. David prays, wash me and I'll be cleaner than snow. And God says, you'll never see those sins again. They're gone forever. In verse 10, we begin to see David focusing on his future. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence or, or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You are, my, you are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord. My mouth will declare your praise. See, David is encouraging us to stop bringing up the past. Forget it. Let it go. Don't keep focusing on that stuff from long ago. Don't cling to the past. Focus instead on the future. I've talked to people, and they've said to me, Pastor, I I blew it. I made a huge mistake, and now I'm going to have to live with that for the rest of my life. I think when we do that, we we doom ourselves. We impose this life sentence without a, a hope of parole. The truth is that God is a God of second chances. There's a modern translation of Isaiah 43 that goes like this. He says, the Lord says, don't cling to the events of the past. Don't dwell on what happened long ago, but watch for the new thing that I'm going to do. What new thing is God going to do? What new thing does God need to do 
in your life. God wants you to look ahead. It's never too late, folks, to start over. Failure is never final unless you want it to be. And then starting in verse 17, we get a hint that something significant has shifted in David's thinking. Something that perhaps he knew before but had forgotten. He says, do not, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. See, what got David in trouble in the first place? It was hubris, wasn't it? It was pride. Pride that, that made him think that he could control and, and, and manipulate and, and exploit and, and deceive other people less powerful than he was. But David remembers that, that God isn't interested so much in all of our religious rituals or sacrifices as he is in our attitude in our heart, a, a broken and contrite heart, which in other words is humility. You see, it takes humility to, to admit that we've done wrong. And unfortunately, most of us have to experience that brokenness before we get there. And that's what David does. He admits his wrongdoing. He accepts God's forgiveness. He admits that he is broken, and he begins to move forward into this new future. Oh, there are consequences there are consequences from this that, that David will have to deal with uh, uh, for way into the future. That there would be pain and there'll be suffering and, and, and there'll be death that will follow David the rest of his life. And, and it all comes from his family. I mean, David has a messed up family, folks. David's daughter Tamar would be raped by her half-brother Amnon. Amnon would be murdered by Tamar's brother Absalom. Absalom would lead a coup against his father David and sleep with his father's concubines. The rebellion would finally be put down and Absalom would be executed. <laughs> Sounds like a soap opera, doesn't it? You see, we may not be able to change what we've already done, we may not be able to fully escape the consequences of our, of our bad choices, but we don't have to continue in that same destructive path. What we discover from David today is we get a second chance, that we can start over. In fact, we not only get a second chance, we get a third chance and a fourth chance and a fifth chance. It doesn't end. I received a phone call from a man once in the middle of the night. And pastors don't like to get those 2 a.m. phone calls because we know it's always something bad. He told me that his wife had found out that he was having an affair and was threatening to leave him. And he wanted to know what he should do. I said, well, maybe you should try repentance <laughs> before God. And before your wife, he said, do you think that will save my marriage? I said, I don't know if it will save your marriage, but it will save your soul. And for the next hour, torrents of tears and, and guilt poured out of him. I think he confessed to me every sin he'd ever committed. 
And I have to admit that oftentimes I'm skeptical of such confessions. And in the heat of the moment, a lot of times people will confess something and then later on they, they kind of try to push it under the carpet. But not this man. I, I knew he was sincere. And I began to wonder where he was with God. And so I asked him, I said, would you like to make Jesus the Savior of your life? And he said he did. He needed somebody to help him out of this mess. And at that moment, he claimed God's grace and God's mercy. And through months of counseling, this couple's marriage was saved, and, and his wife was graciously able to forgive her husband as well. They renewed their covenant of marriage, and they were finally able to close the door on this painful past. And I must tell you, I have never, ever seen a life or a marriage so transformed by the power of forgiveness. Folks, there, there, there's power in repentance. I, I know a lot of us think that repentance is, is some old-fashioned religious word and that we're far beyond that. We're too civilized for that. But I'll tell you, for me, repentance is a word that's full of hope because it, it, it tells me that I don't have to stay as I am, that I don't have to be held captive to the failures of my past, that I can start over. Folks, I would hate to live in a world where there is no chance to start over, where there's no opportunity to, to deal with the garbage of my life. And maybe that's where you are today. Maybe some of you here today, you're feeling paralyzed by a painful past. And you need that healing. You need that forgiveness by God. And if that's where you are, I just want to tell you today that your life can be different, that you can change because of what Jesus did on the cross. All things can become new, that we can say goodbye to our hurtful past and begin a new future full of hope. If that's you today, Let's bow our heads together and let's pray. Thank you, God, that we no longer need to be in bondage to a bad past. That through the cross of Christ, we can be forgiven and become a brand new creation in him. We pray for all of us that you would give us the purity, that you would give us the intensity, that you would give us the focus to be the kind of people that you would desire us to be. And we pray this through the wonderful name of Jesus, who's made it all possible. Amen.